Okay, gentlemen, let's go ahead and uh, pull things together here this morning. Good morning. Good to see all of you men here. I'm uh, grateful for the opportunity to be together and to uh, open up God's Word and to just think a little bit about how we ought to be thinking in light of what God has said is true. So I'm grateful that we're able to do that here together today. There is no better place for us to be, and that includes at home in bed. Uh, this is where we ought to be, so it's good. And Kevin Garrett, good to see you back, brother. Welcome. Uh, had a good trip to Honduras? Good. Kevin was there visiting our missionaries at Kilchrist's, and I'm looking forward to catching up with him a little bit later today. But man, that's devotion. He just like flew back into town, and here, here he is. So grateful to have him home. Pastor Jeremiah is home too, I think. He, I, I'm not sure if he's here this morning or not yet, but... Uh, you, 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 but he is back. Okay, good. That's that's that, that's really good. <laughs> yeah, good. Well, let's go ahead and open up in a word of prayer. All right, and then we'll go ahead and get started for this morning. Okay, Father, thank you for uh, this new day that you granted to us. I know each of us, as men, have issues that we're facing today. Uh, we all have circumstances that will require your wisdom that comes from above. We have challenges that will require great strength and grace. Um, and there will be joys in front of us today as well, for which we ought to give you thanks. And so, Father, in all these things, um, the, the one constant that we know we need is you. So I pray that today, indeed, we would set our face towards heaven, our eyes on Jesus, and that we would pursue you uh, with the entirety of our being. pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. <clears throat> well, according to the schedule, which is the plan... Um, we're going to dig into a biblical perspective on gender and sexuality here this morning. So we've got a lot of ground to cover. You know, each one of these um, topics that we're covering in anthropology are just enormously huge. Um, bigger than I thought they were going to be when we outlined the course. As I kind of dig into these things and I'm studying and researching and looking into them, it's just like, whoa, there's, there's a lot that could be said in that area. And then the next week I come back and I'm saying, oh, no, there's a lot more that could be said in this area. Uh, and that's certainly true here this week. So <coughs> here's the plan. Um, today we're going to go through the foundations, the biblical foundations, for how to think about gender and sexuality in light of God's plan and look at how the, the world and our culture has shifted and twisted that plan uh, to be what they would have for it to be. And we'll see why they've done that. Uh, and hopefully that'll be helpful to you men in equipping you to be able to defend um, not only the truth of what God says, um, but also the, the beauty of his design as well. So that's really our purpose for today, is looking at the biblical foundations, seeking to understand the issue. And then next week, we're going to dig into a little bit um, the, the different roles that God has given uh, to male and female. Um, and so we'll we'll dive into that. That's an issue that is known as biblical complementarianism. Um, that's the, the doctrinal title. And so we'll, if you don't know what that is, that's okay. Come back next week. We'll get into it and we'll explain it. So this week, foundations. Next week, kind of the practical outworking of what that looks like uh, in life and in marriage specifically. Okay. Um, I, I will say <coughs> that there is a book titled uh, Strange New World by a man named Carl Truman, okay, that is very, very helpful when it comes to this issue of modern gender and sexuality, understanding what is going on around us. You know, we look at the news, and for those of us who kind of grew up 
20 plus years ago we're looking at the headlines like I, I just don't understand <laughs> like h how how do we get here and, and how did this even happen and, and Truman really chronicles um, how that happened and explains why it's happening and shows the trajectory of where that's going um, very helpful book um, it's on the scale of you know one to ten if um, the the theology proper book um, none, none greater is at, a, is at like a nine or a ten I would say this is going to be at like a five or a six okay so it's it's going to challenge you but it's readable um, and it's very helpful okay now <coughs> do not get uh, another book by Carl Truman called Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's the same material but about 600 pages longer and very technical. That's going to be a 10, on a 10 out of 10 on the scale. Okay, And the reason why he wrote Strange New World is because people said, hey, this is a great academic work, but I don't know what you're saying. Um, so he rewrote it in a lay level version and that version is Strange New World. So if you're looking on Amazon and you see two books by Carl Truman, Strange New World is the one that you want because it's shorter, much more readable, same content, same point, just a little easier to get through. Okay, but that book is super helpful to understanding where we're at and what's going on. I could not highly recommend it to you enough. I think all of you guys, if I could make you read it, I would, because I think it would really equip you well to understand what in the world is going on. And guys, the questions of what are going, what is going on as it relates to gender and sexuality in our world are questions that you need to be equipped to answer uh, because you are going to be faced with and confronted by them. All right. Now, let me just back up a little bit here and say <coughs> that there's a distinct order of operations that we're moving through here as we go through this study of biblical anthropology. Right? I'm not just cherry-picking issues and you know, kind of saying, well, this week I feel like talking about gender. I don't. <laughs> Um, but there's a reason why we're going in the order that we're going in, okay? It's because we started out week one, let me just review b very quickly, man's identity is that he was made in the image of God, which then leads directly to man's responsibility, which we saw in week two, which is known as the creation mandate. Be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, fill it, and exercise dominion over it. And the means by which we are able to fulfill that mandate is through our application of effort to work. And that's the reason why we went directly from the creation mandate into a theology of work, seeking to understand what has God designed for us in this field of work. Work is the means by which the mandate is accomplished. And then that led, that understanding, that biblical understanding of work, the theology of work, led to a discussion of technology. Because technology is really the tools that God has given to us in order to accomplish our work. And so that's the reason why we've, we've gone about it in the order that we've done. But now that we've covered technology, the reality of our fallen world and the advancement of our technology has gotten to a place where that same technology that God intended for us to leverage in our work is now being leveraged in our great and cosmic rebellion. And that's exactly what you see happening here in this area of gender and sexuality. It's because of our advancements in technology that now we have the capacity in ways that previous generations could never have dreamed to actually bring 
fruition and fulfillment to all of the different gender confusions and sexual identities and desires that now exist within the human heart. Uh, that's something where people may have had those desires in the past, but their ability to act out on those desires was hampered and limited because of the limitations of technology. But as technology has increased now, so too has mankind's effort to leverage that increase in technology to facilitate a sexual kind of rebellion. And we'll see that as we go here. But that's the reason why we're going in the order that we're going in here, because it's really our technological prowess that is enabling the perversion of our gender and sexuality to a degree that was not previously possible or imaginable. And that's why we're going from tech to sex, okay? Gender and sex now in the world in which we live, those things have become utterly foundational to the concept of one's identity. Here's what the world says. The world says, find your identity in your gender, which is fully customizable and conformable and is something that is an internal reality and is distinct from your external biological sex. And your biological sex, male or female, can be adapted technologically to be conformed to the internal reality of who you truly are, your real identity. Because gender is fluid, sex can be changed accordingly to be conformed to whatever your internally identified gender is. And now we've got the tech to actually pull off that transformation, right? And that's what you see happening around us in the world. But God says, no, there is no distinction between your gender and your sex. Your sex, biologically, is determined at conception, and your gender, either male or female, that's it, will be reflected in your biological reality. Your true identity is found in your relationship to him, not by your own conception of whatever internal gender you choose to select. Okay, that's God's presentation of this truth, contrasted with the world's presentation of this truth. But see, when mankind, when we as a human race, cut ourselves loose from finding our identity in who God is as beings created in his, in his image, when we rebel and refuse to acknowledge even the very existence of God, then we, as human beings, have to fill that identification void somehow, some way. And the most powerful urge and desire of the heart in, of mankind, the most powerful biological urge that, that we know, is sex. And so that's where we as the human race now find ourselves running to find our new identity. No longer does mankind see himself as being a dignified, ennobled being because he's made in the image of God. No, now we are able to make ourselves into whatever we want to and into whatever our heart might desire. And there are no limitations, there is no external standard, and so whatever you think, whatever you feel is what you are, and therefore integrity in the absence of any moral absolute is for you to be most true to who you are. And, and that is integrity. 
And that comes with some really major ramifications that we're going to get into here as we go this morning. But that's really kind of what's, what's at stake here as we're talking. A, a fundamentally different worldview between the one that, that our world has and what God says. And obviously, as followers of Jesus Christ, as, as Christians, we desire to follow what God says, even as we walk through a world that is thinking in a very, very different way. Okay? We have become detached from reality, and now we need to bring the truth to bear upon our own existence. And that's what my hope and prayer is we can do here today as we go through together. All right? So let's just think through some of the foundations of this issue here together. Because really, everything we're going to talk about as being the biblical um, design that God has put into place here flows out of the theological truths that we've already discussed in prior weeks. So you'll remember that the purpose of mankind is to what? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And that's what we've been learning as we've been going through even John 17, for instance. That our fundamental purpose now is to bring glory to God. To reflect the nature of who He is. To fulfill His desires rather than our own. And to enjoy the, the fullness and the goodness of His character for the rest of eternity. That's why we were created the fall has destroyed our ability to actually fulfill that purpose of glorifying Him. But now in redemption, we are restored and Jesus has the ability to say, So now, Father, as you do your work in them, I am glorified once more in them. That's the, the glory of the redemptive story. But, but that's our purpose. Our purpose, fundamentally, is to glorify God. And we'll see here in a few minutes how that has major ramifications on which direction you go in the conversation that we're about to have. Right, that's our purpose. We've already learned that. Second thing we've already learned is a truth about our identity. That we are made in the image of God. We are not made in our own image. We are not made as autonomous beings detached from any theological reality or, or moral coding. No, we have been made in the image of God, which means we have been granted the unique capacity to reflect the communicable attributes of who God is. We, alone in creation, have the ability, and it's unique to us, to manifest the, the character of God Himself. That's the that's the nature that God has installed in us, and it's the means by which we are able to bring glory to Him. Right? If His glory is His attributes, and we were made with the capacity to reflect His attributes, the way that we bring glory to Him is by exercising the reality of having been made in His image, and reflecting His character for all of creation to see. That's our purpose. That's our identity. And, and when... We understand those two foundational building blocks, then you will understand that every single part of your person has been designed on purpose by God to accomplish His own ends. And gentlemen, that includes your gender and your sexuality. Those are two vehicles that have been given to you by God 
through which He intends for you to bring Him glory and not yourself. Just as your personality, just as your ability to think clearly, just as your ability to communicate um, with, with clarity, just as your ability to, to feel, to have emotions, are all vehicles by which the image of God is able to be displayed, so too is your specific gender and your application of that gender in the area of sexuality so too are those things vehicles by which you are to glorify God and put on display the image of who He is. Now, we've learned, haven't we, that the fall of mankind has radically impacted our ability to actually do this. And the fall has infected every single human vehicle that God has given to us to bring Him glory. And now all those vehicles that were meant for His glorification have been twisted and perverted to bring ourselves glory and to fulfill our own desires rather than bringing glory to His name. That's what we have to understand. But we need to go back to the foundational fundamentals here and understand that God had a clear design in mind when He made mankind. So to that end, let's go ahead and start out in Genesis chapter 1, and I want to begin by welding this idea of gender tightly and irretrievably to the idea of God's specific creation of us in His own image. Your gender is associated with your identity, but not in the way that the world thinks that it is. Genesis chapter 1 Verse 27. Somebody go ahead and read that for us. We've read it before because we've talked about being made in the image of God, but let's read it again because we really haven't dealt with the third and final line. Okay, do you see it right there? Male and female, he created them. And that identity of two genders hardwired into creation is put into place as being part and parcel of what it is to be made in the image of God. See, the, the, the first, foremost, primary way by which God expresses the image is through the divine design that he has for man and woman to cooperate together. And it's through that cooperation now that additional human beings will be born, all of whom will be bearing the image of God. And so as human be- as male and female come together and facilitate the purpose of biological reproduction, additional images of God are now being presented, are now being created from, from nothing. And so every time a, a man and a woman come together by God's design and a new human life is created, we're meant to remember a few things. We're meant to remember, first of all, that God is a creative being. He has the capacity to bring something into existence that comes from nothing. And that that He alone is the creator. And so when a child is born, we look at that and we say, what a miracle new life is. And it's true. It's an absolute miracle that that is able to take place. But what that should be reminding mankind of is the reality that God is the creator. And in His creation... The means by which that new life was created was through the union of male and female according to his 
clear divine design. And there is no other way for human life to be created. And, and, and that is according to his design. And he has now hardwired that design and that creative capacity into the life of humanity. All of those things are intended to remind us of who he is. And so in many ways, when people say that, you know, my gender does not conform to my sexuality, and so this is who I really am on the inside, for them to, quote, come out of the closet is really to stuff the intention of God for you and to stuff the reality of his glory into the closet. The only way for you to come out of the closet is to put your concern for the glory of God back into that closet. Because it's the glory of God that we're responsible to live for. And you cannot say, I am who I am independently from God's design for me and still say that I am living for the glory of his name. Because, guys, his biological hardwiring in humanity, it reflects a fundamentally theological reality. See, you and I were made to use the unique design that he has given to us to fulfill our purpose of reflecting his nature, not our own. But as we've talked about here now, the fall of man has turned that equation on its head. It's turned it upside down. Now, now mankind exists to promote our own internally identified nature rather than seeking the nature of him as the creator, the one who has bestowed our nature upon us. Which means that mankind today is seeking to harness the idea of gender and sexuality to serve themselves and their own desires rather than to serve God and his desires. And guys, you're not going to be equipped in the face of that kind of an existential nature of a challenge. If your understanding of this issue simply extends to the statement, well, homosexuality is wrong. If, if that's the extent of your ability to defend what you believe, well, this is wrong, um, then you need, then, then you need to, to dig a little bit deeper. You need to understand that it's sin. You need to understand why it is sin. You need to understand why it matters to God so much, and you need to be able to present, to prevent, to, I'm sorry, it is 653. Um, let me try that again. You need to be able to present an alternative worldview. And you need to know that, not just because you're going to be called upon uh, to present those things, you're not just going to be challenged on it, but because your wife, and even more significantly perhaps, your children, if God has blessed you with them, are going to be challenged and confronted with these things. And guess who is responsible to equip your wife and kids to answer these things? It's not me. <laughs> it's you. See, my, but my job is to, is to try to help equip you to be able to do that job, which is, which is your job. And that's what I want to help you men with here just a little bit this morning. All right, so now that we've kind of set some groundwork and we've talked about what's going on, um, let's get down into it here just a little bit. I want to talk about the nature of gender and sexuality uh, here together from God's perspective. So the first thing that we'll cover here together is the reality that gender and sexuality are first theological realities before they are anthropological realities. So when mankind starts with himself, well of course he's going to end up in any one of a thousand different directions. 
but you can't start out this conversation with a focus upon mankind and what he desires and what he thinks. You have to start it out with God and who he is and what he has designed. The gender and sexuality are first theological before they are anthropological. And let me, let me just show this to you quickly by going through Genesis chapter 1. All right? Gender first shows the intentionality of God's mind. God did not do this on accident. Right? He doesn't create the rest of creation and then, make, and then make the pinnacle of creation, mankind, Adam, and look at him and say, oops, you know what, I messed up. Um, everything else has male and female, and that's how they reproduce. But mankind, oh, there's a fatal flaw here. There's only, there's only male. Um, we, better, we better go ahead and fix that and make a female. Um, it's not an accident that, that mankind was made male and female. No, the, the nature of that story is God looks at Adam and says it's, it's good, it's not good for him to be alone, actually highlights the reality of the design of God and saying, no, he must have a, a, a counterpart. He must have a female. There's a, there's a high degree of intentionality in the design that God has put into place. And so man, in his own infinitely foolish wisdom does not have the right to say God messed up I am X and therefore I will give expression to that no God's design was intentional it was on purpose when he created and Genesis 1 we've already read it demonstrates that he created man in his own image in the image of God he created him and that means this male and female he created them and you can't get around that. You, 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 you cannot deny that and simultaneously claim that God exists and is sovereign. Okay, that's the first thing we need to understand. There is intentionality in the mind of God here that is demonstrated by His unique divine design. Second thing that we should say here is that this idea of gender and sexuality being hardwired into creation it shows the holiness that exists that is part and parcel of God's nature as well Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 there is a, a moral code of sorts that God puts into this divine design of the two genders and their sexuality that they share together he says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. See, so much of our understanding of morality is directly tied to our understanding of sexuality. And that is not an accident. That is on purpose. And that reveals to us something about the nature of God's holiness. There are moral absolutes. There are right and wrong. And those things are known, hardwired into the conscience of mankind, Romans 1 says, on purpose. Everybody knows that you leave another man's wife alone. Why? Because of Genesis 2.24. It's been that way since creation. God has hardwired morality via sexuality into the heart of mankind so that we would know there is an absolute right, there is an absolute wrong, and we as human beings do not have the right to set those terms. God is the one who did that, and he established morality at the very beginning of creation. And that's the second thing that we learn here. 
Third thing we could learn is that gender also shows the power of God's arm. You can see that if you go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. And if you skip down there, you can see then the creation of Eve that comes a little bit later. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And he called the, the, he called him or he called that creature woman and brought her to the man. So this idea of gender, God wonderfully and uniquely creates himself both male and female. And as we've already said, every time those two come together, there is a new act of creation, a new life that is produced that is meant to remind us of the reality of God's creative power. Okay? So gender, the fact that male and female, those distinctions do exist, is meant to remind us that God is a creatively powerful God and is the author of life. Uh, the fourth thing that we can learn here is that gender shows us the desire of God's heart. And you can see that <clears throat> where we're at right now in verse 21 where God says it's not good for man to be alone we'll make him a helper and he makes a helper for Adam which just goes to show the goodness the kindness the mercy and the grace of God's heart towards man towards his creation he looks at mankind men and he says it's not good for them to be alone and that's a verse that I think those of us who have wives can say amen to it's not, it would not be good for me to be alone. There is a wonderfully sanctifying influence that comes um, through the marriage that I have to Michelle. I mean, sometimes that's, that's painful. Sometimes that can feel like sandpaper. But you look back over the years and you see, wow, that has been really, really good for me. It has shaped me and affected me in a way that has oriented me further towards God that would not have happened were it not for her being in my life as a gift from God. And so that reality of God's divine design, male and female coming together now being one flesh, is good. It's a reflection of his kindness. It's a reflection of his beauty and his grace, his compassion for me as an individual. And that's what we have to remember, that this, this is a good thing. And so those are some principles that I would throw out there to say, look, this is first and foremost a theological issue before it's an anthropological issue. But, point number two, we know that sin has irretrievably marked mankind's understanding of both gender and sexuality. And here are some things that we need to learn about these. And I'm going to go through these pretty quickly because I think we understand them. The world now, because of sin, sees gender as being fluid. God says, no, it's not. It's fixed. I looked it up this morning and I just googled how many genders are there and you would be amazed at the results here's here's what the very first well the the the, the, the Google page says 57 72 20 107 they can't even agree on how many genders there are and I don't say that to make fun I, I say that to, to mark this as a genuine tragedy my first re my first reaction to that is to laugh and say how ridiculous is that but, but then, my second reaction is to actually look at this through the lens of God's perspective and say, how utterly 
tragic is that? Because here's their statement that pops up on Google top of the page. Gender isn't about someone's anatomy. It is about who they know themselves to be. And so there are many gender identities, including male and female, transgender, gender neutral, non-binary, agender, pangender, gender queer, two-spirit, third gender, and all or none of a combination of these. The point is, you can be whoever you want to be. Because I am the one who assigns myself my gender, independently from God or any other external conformable source of authority. I am the authority, and so I can be whoever I want to be. And that's the way the world thinks. And God says that's just not the way it is. <laughs> right? Um, so the world now finds the external expression of their internal reality through sexuality. But God says, by definition, that you need to find your identity not in your expression of sexuality, which is a reflection of your internal gender. God says you need to find your identity in me. Right? The world says that sexuality is a powerful biological urge that I have a right to. It would be a crime for you to cut off my biological urge to breathe. You'd kill me. It would be a crime for you to deprive me of my biological urge to eat. That would be to kill me. In the same way, in their, according to their logic, it would be, should be, a crime for you to deny me my biological urge to engage in sexuality of whatever form I desire. Right? That, that is the direction of our society's logic and morality. Sexuality is an urgent right to which I am entitled. It is part and parcel central to who I am. God says, no, no it's not. Your sexuality is a gift from me and it was meant to be a vehicle by which you bring me glory rather than yourself. Like that's the distinction between the world's perspective and God's perspective. The world sees sex as being inherently selfish. The aim of sexual union or intercourse is what makes me feel good. What do I enjoy or appreciate? That's a fundamentally selfish perspective on sexuality. God says, though, by way of contrast, that no, sexuality was designed to be inherently selfless. The aim is first and foremost to be what pleases my spouse in the confines of a marital union. So, in light of all of that, the world now believes that your sex means everything, but the act of sex itself means nothing. Right? It's the expression of an internal reality that means everything. And to, to have integrity and be true to yourself, you must give expression to that by giving expression externally to your sexuality. But that's what matters. The actual act itself and who you do that with or, or what you do it with doesn't matter at all. The act itself is not holy. There, there's, no, there's no morality to the act. What is moral is you giving expression to your truest self. That's the world's perspective. And as we can see, as we compare that to God's design, that is absolutely upside down to what he created us for. Carl Truman says it this way, the modern self is one where authenticity is achieved by acting outwardly in accordance with one, one's inward 
feelings. Right? That's what our society believes today. That the highest good, the most noble form of integrity, is for me to be out here via my sexuality in line with the reality of who I am in here with my gender. And therefore, gender reassignment surgery is a good, noble, moral thing. To, to be reassigned in your gender or in your, in your sex is to give expression to the integrity of who you are. And so that's good, that's noble, that's right. That's the way our world views it. That's wrong. See, so you say, okay, I, I get that that's wrong. You don't have to convince me. What was Christian sexuality meant to be and how is it a tool that can be stewarded unto God's glory? Well, let's just think through this for a little bit here. And I've got some verses here I'm going to ask you men to help me read, all right? So Ephesians, we're, we're going to go to a couple passages in particular. Ephesians 5.25, who can read that? Tom? Um, 1 Corinthians 7.4? Okay. Um, Ephesians 5... Well, Tom, you just stay in Ephesians 5, and I'm going to have you do a couple. First uh, Peter 3.7. Okay, Dan. Um, that, that'll be good for now, okay? Christian sexuality is a tool that's meant to be stewarded unto God's glory. How so? All right. Your sexuality was meant to show a spirit of self-sacrifice. That is the Christian view of sex. Now, you look at Ephesians chapter 5, and people read this passage. It's kind of a foundational passage of what the role of man is to be in marriage. And they think, sounds good. How exactly do I apply that in practice? Well, the way that you apply that text is to apply it to every area of your marital life, including the area of sexuality, right? So this is what God has designed for a marriage relationship, for a sexual relationship. Ephesians 5.25, let's apply that truth to this concept. Tom? Okay, there is a sacrificial element there where my primary desire is not for myself, it is for her and the fulfillment of her desires. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4, who is there? That's a verse that we as men love to quote, isn't it? Right? That, hey, you know, I, we, we've got authority over each other's bodies. But the, the point there, the spiritual purpose that, is, that, that, that God is pointing our attention to there, is that sexuality in the confines of marriage, as God designed it, is a tool that is to be stewarded to reflect His nature. A selfless, sacrificial, gracious sort of nature. What does that mean? Sexuality is not a reality that is to be demanded. It is not a right that you have. It is a vehicle by which you can put on display a form of love that first and foremost, first and foremost prioritizes the good and the desire of someone else. Just as Christ sacrificially loved the church and put its needs before his own, so too are we now, as men, called to love our spouses in that same way. And that truth applies to sexuality. Now that doesn't mean that I have no desires in the context of marital sexual intimacy. 
but it does mean that those desires get subserviated to and submitted to the desires of my wife, right? That her desires are the ones that I am first and foremost seeking to pursue, right? Putting her interests and her desires, Philippians chapter 2, before my own. And, and as I do that, I am now putting on display a kind of love that is reflective of Christ's love for me. And thereby, I am showing the glory of God within the context of, of my marriage relationship. That's how this plays out. Second, Christian sexuality is a tool that's meant to be stewarded under God's glory. How does this play out? All right? It requires a loyal love, commitment, and care. Tom, go ahead and read Ephesians 5.28 for me. Okay. Husbands are to love their own wives as their own bodies. We are all very loyal to ourselves, right? When my toenails need clipping, I clip them, right? Because that's a, a personal need that I have, and so I'm, I'm careful to care for myself and for the bodily needs that I have. And the, the, the biblical ethic here, the biblical expectation, is not for toenail clipping. Let me just be very clear here. Okay. The point is that I would care for her needs as carefully as I seek to care for my own. Her emotional needs, her physical needs, her spiritual needs, her sexual needs, all of it. That I would give as much attention and priority to her needs as I do to my own needs. That comes with an idea of love and commitment and carefulness. First Peter 3, 7. Who, who had that one? Okay, Dan? Okay? In an understanding way, what is helpful and beneficial and good for her. And you have to apply that to your understanding of sexuality in the confines of, of marriage. What is good and helpful to my wife? What are her needs and her interests and her desires? My first goal before I serve my own desires is to serve her. Because my body belongs to her. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. That's the way that this is supposed to work in the confines of Christian marriage. And that's how your sexuality is a tool that is meant to bring glory to God. All right, another one. Um, Tom, you're going to read a lot this morning. Ephesians chapter 5, 29. What else does this mean? How is my sexuality a tool stewarded to the glory of God? Nope, sure haven't. Okay, nobody... Nobody in this room hates their own flesh. No one sets out in the morning when you wake up at 5.30 to come to the forge to say, I'm going to do as much damage to myself today as I possibly can. Nobody does that. No, we are all devoted to our own good. Ephesians 5.29 says that this is the pattern for marriage as well, and it's the pattern for your sexuality too, requiring exclusive devotion that flows from a redeemed heart and mind and therefore brings glory to God. Okay? Ultimately, your sexuality is an act of worship when you're doing it as unto the glory of the Lord and the way that He has prescribed for you to do it that acknowledges the design of the Creator. Tom, last one, uh, Ephesians 5, 31-32. 
Okay? So what Paul is doing here is he's using the relationship between male and female. And there in verse 31, he actually points back to the sexual union of male and female that is patterned for us in Genesis 1 and 2. And he points to that as being a means by which worship is able to take place as we become a living, breathing image of the relationship that exists between Jesus and his bride, the church. So the point here is that your sexuality was meant to be a reminder of God's creative power as life is continually being brought into existence, new images of God being produced via your sexuality, and the way by which you produce that sexuality inherently is meant to reflect the nature and character of Christ rather than the nature and the character of this world. Our exercise of sexuality is to be pure and undefiled, right, as First Thessalonians tells us. And this is the will of God for you, that, that you would exercise this aspect, this tool that God has given to you to live as unto his glory and thereby worship him in every area of your life. Whether therefore you eat or drink or engage in human sexuality, the verse may as well say that, do it all to the glory of God. What does that mean? I am imaging and patterning His nature in every pursuit of my life. This is a tool, a vehicle, by which I am responsible now to seek to bring Him glory and show His nature. All right? So, that's what we've learned there. Principle number three. Let me go quickly now. Number four, the destruction of God's design for gender, the perversion of his design for sex, is clearly sin. Um, now, that is not a statement that is going to go over well on Facebook or on live stream. It's probably going to get me banned from Facebook for saying that. So, the Facebook you know, beings, you've been warned. Go ahead, do it. I don't care. Because that's what God says. You know, we live in a world where if you say, I love you, but not your sin, the person hearing that cannot make any sense out of it whatsoever. Because their sin has become their fundamental identity. Right? Their expression of who they are is who they are. And so when you say, I love you, but not your sin, the person that hears that in our world hears instead, I hate who you are. That's what they hear when you say that. Uh, Truman says it this way, the old chestnut of love the sinner, hate the sin simply doesn't work in a world where the sin is the identity of the sinner and the two cannot be separated. Now guys, going forward, this is going to have massive ramifications for freedom of speech and religion. See, just as you are free until you produce bodily injury in somebody else, um, soon you will be free, right? So my point is, let me just clarify here, I'm not being clear. My point is, you can't, um, you, you're free to do whatever you want to do until you strike or injure another human being's body. A and then suddenly, that's where the borderline stops. You're no, longer, you're no longer free to do whatever you want to. Now that's called assault, and it's a crime. I in the same way, soon you will be free to say or believe whatever you want to unless it produces traumatic emotional injury to someone's internal reality. Because the truest form of who someone is, right, the only standard of authority that's left that means anything at all in the world's estimation is who I am in here. And so if you do something to do trauma or injury to who I am in here, if you try to convince me that who, who I am in here, which is the truest form of myself, 
if you try to tell me that that is sin, that that is wrong, that is tantamount and the same thing as if you walked up and sucker punched me in the face. Right? The same thing is true. If you, if you bodily assaulted me, for you to assault my internal reality is the same kind of an assault. And, and that's the direction that our society is going in. And we say that that is false because we know that God is the creator and therefore there are moral principles outside of us to which we will give an account. The highest form of, of authority is not who you think you are on the inside. The highest form of authority is who God is and what he has said is right and wrong. And here is what he has said. You can go back through the Old Testament and the New Testament and you can clearly see what God has said. You go to texts like Leviticus chapter 10. You go to texts like Leviticus chapter 12. You go to texts like 1 Timothy 1.10. You go to texts like Romans chapter 1 and you find out what God says about those who deny the reality of gender and misuse their sexuality. And our world does all kinds of hermeneutical dances. Out of curiosity, I looked up what some of them would say uh, yesterday. And, and they try to take all those, those, those texts and say, well, the biblical authors weren't mistaken. They were right in the historical context in which they were writing, that those things were wrong then. But today, it's different because we have a better understanding of our internal reality. And so if those biblical authors were writing today, they would say something very different. Wrong because it's not a biblical author writing in a historical context that is the source of those words. It is the holy, universal, never-ending, omnipresent God of the universe who has said, this is what I have decreed and hardwired into my creation. That homosexuality, sex outside of marriage, sexual perversions of any kind, other than a man and a woman in the context of a sexual union in marriage, is sin and wrong and such will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is what God says very clearly. Okay? So I want to equip you for that because you'll hear people out there say, this isn't wrong. That's not what God meant. That's not what God said. That's not really sin. No, God very clearly, explicitly calls it sin. Okay? One more point here that I want to get through, and then if we've got some time, I'll answer your questions, and you're welcome to come and talk to me afterwards. All right? Number five, your desires, and this is what we've got to understand, guys. Your desires are a reflection of what you worship. We worship what we most desire. And so when our society worships, really, their own sexuality, it's because that's what they now most desire in place of God. Truman says this, in biblical times, sex was regarded as something that human beings did. Today it is considered to be something that is vital to who human beings are. And it has been elevated to the status of a religion. It is the most fundamental urge and need that I have, and so I am going to pursue that with the full totality and extent of my being. Guys, that is not God's design for sexuality in your life. For your very identity and purpose and drive and motivation for everything in life to be bound up to sexuality. That is to replace God with a sex drive. God is the one who is to be the target 
of our desires, of our pursuits, of our urgent passions, where we are responsible to pursue Him from pure, clean hearts that have been purified now as being the primary focus of our life, knowing that sexuality is a good gift from God, but it needs to be kept in its appropriate place. It's nothing more than a tool by which I am now able to bring Him glory. It's a means by which I'm able to give expression of a true heart of worship, but it can never become the object of my worship. And that is what our society has done with sexuality. The culture's idea of worship is to be true to your sexual desires. But if you worship God, then here's what you'll do with your sexuality. You will prefer someone else before yourself in a marital sexual relationship because that's an act of worship. If you're a single man in the room, what does that mean? It means that you will save yourself for that future marital sexual relationship out of deference and service and worship to God, knowing that this is His design. See, to objectify a woman by looking at pornography as a commodity for your own personal consumption is to worship you and your desires, not God and His desires. To objectify your wife by turning her into a pleasurable commodity who exists primarily for my own personal consumption is to worship yourself and not God. Right? Your sexuality exists so that you might bring glory and honor to God by, by manifesting His nature through a sexual union in marriage. So that's the point we're trying to make here. The worship of God through your sexuality that we're talking about here means that you will love her, your wife, or you will save yourself for that future wife, just as Christ has loved you. How has Christ loved you? Well, He's done that sacrificially. He's done that graciously. done that patiently and kindly, mercifully, with great long-suffering, with great, get this, self-control. Gentlemen, this is what I'm calling us to here this morning now, all right, is that we would be faithful to apply, listen now, the fruit of the Spirit to our sexual relationships with our spouses. And I promise you that that will change everything for you for the better. Because that is God's design for why He made things the way that He did. That your sex life would be an extension of your worship life. Because the two go together. Now let me be very clear, that doesn't mean I'm advocating for the singing of hymns during times of intimacy, alright? That may not go over so well. Now if that's working for you, don't stop, whatever you want to do. But what I am advocating here for, guys, is for the application of Christ-likeness in the way that you treat your wife and care for her first and foremost through, in, through the engagement with her in intimacy. Now, if you're sitting here this morning and you're just like, I, I don't know what that means, <laughs> um, and no one's ever taught me this before, and I don't know what that's supposed to look like in a marriage relationship, can, can I get some help? I would really encourage you to come and talk with me, with Pastor Jeremiah. He's really good at having this conversation. Um, so, is, so is Doug, Bruce, any of the elders. We would be happy to talk through that with you if you're saying, I just, I just need some instructions on what that looks like in a marriage relationship because this is not the way I've thought about it. Um, I would strongly encourage you 
just come and talk to us, get help, um, because this is so very necessary. This is God's design, that the expression of sexuality in marriage would be good and beautiful, a gift that has been given to him, but that it would be first and foremost a means by which we would be able to show Christ's likeness in the most intimate relationship that we have, so that the nature and character of God might be put on display in a way that is reflective of who he is and the oneness that he now desires to share with us. That's what marriage is intended to be. That's what the marriage bed is intended to convey. That's what he designed this to be. And, and so I would encourage you to, to get the help that you need, if you need it, um, because you don't want to miss out on one of the great blessings and gifts that God has given to us. Uh, as men, because you just don't understand the truth of, of what he's designed. So, we have covered a lot of ground here this morning, talking about gender, sexuality, how the world sees it, how we should see it, what that should be in a Christian life. I know that was a lot. So thanks for hanging in there through the fire hose. I've got three minutes left. Uh, any pressing questions at all? Yeah, Christian. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so, in fact, Bob Drews handed me a, a printout from a church over in Elgin, Elgin, Illinois. What does the Bible say about homosexuality, same-sex attraction, and being transgender? Number one, God loves LGBTQ people. Well, yes, that's true. But he does, not, he does not love them as they are, right? Um, and they quote Romans 8.38, Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Well, what about 1 Timothy 1.10 that says, Those who practice these things will never enter the kingdom of God, right? Um, it says, God did not make a mistake in creating LGBTQ, LGBTQ people. And they quote Psalm 139, For you, are, you were fearfully and wonderfully made. Well, yes, that is true, but God also made you as a biological male. Genesis 1.27, right? Um, so they're, they're only looking at those passages that would, that would affirm those things that they would want to affirm, but they completely ignore these explicit statements that God has made. Um, Leviticus chapter 10, He who lays with a male as he would with a female has committed an abomination before the Lord. That's not a contextually defined statement. That is a rock-solid moral code that God has written into the universe. He's, he he reaffirms. You say, well, that's Old Testament. No, he reaffirms it in the New Testament. Romans chapter 1. He has given them over to the depravity of their mind, men choosing to do that which is unnatural and treating other men as though they were women. Right? Uh, so you cannot get around those things other than just to cut them out of your Bible with a penknife and push them off to the side. Uh, so that, that's where those churches are getting those things from. They are not looking at the whole counsel of what God has said and they're recrafting a faith that is tolerable for the culture. Okay? I dare say that... Well, I won't say that. Never mind. Forget it. Okay? One more. Any other questions? Yeah.
Well, what, I think what you're trying to say is the truth that's found in, I think it's 1 Corinthians 2, where it says, they professing to be wise have made themselves to be fools. Right, where you have ignored the reality of the created order and, and in your urgency to throw off the shackles of God's morality and create your own, you are doing things that, that any preschooler could tell you, that don't make sense. Right? In, the, in the grandeur of your wisdom, you have made yourself into a fool because you have traded the glory of the creator for the creation. And guys, that's what it boils down to at the end of the day. Mankind apart from God always pursues his own desires because mankind is his own God and therefore he will prioritize what he wants above what God or anybody else wants because he worships himself we are called to not be like that to not think sexually as our world thinks as it worships itself we are called to worship God walk with him and follow his moral code because that's what he's designed us for and in the end, trust me, it is so much better. And will be worth it. All right, which is a good segue to next week. What are the roles of men and women, and how should that look? How should that work? We'll come back then, and we'll talk about biblical complementarianism. All right, see you then.